السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم افتح علينا بحكمتك وانشر علينا برحمتك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام اللهم صلي وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله في كل نمحة ونفس عدد ما وسعه علم الله يا عليم علمنا من علمك ما ترضى به عنا ولا تؤاخذنا بما تعلمه منا يا حليم خلقنا بخلق الحلم وحققنا بحقائق العلم سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه أجمعين والحمد لله رب العالمين السلام عليكم أكد I apologize, uh, I'm feeling ill, so that you might see, hear that in my voice. <coughs> and uh, also, we were running a little bit late because also this microphone is also feeling ill. So we had to kind of, you know, massage the microphone and make it feel a little bit better so that it would project. Alhamdulillah. <coughs> but uh, I didn't want to lose the opportunity to be with all of you. Uh, and uh, it's always very special every Saturday morning when we come together. And it means a lot to me, alhamdulillah. But we're continuing to follow uh, the beautiful text, Marvels of the Heart, in which uh, the author, Imam al-Ghazali, may God be well pleased with him, he speaks about this very special vessel that we all have within us. And of course, we spoke a little bit about the physical heart, but primarily when Imam al-Ghazali refers to the heart, he is referring to our spiritual hearts, right? The heart of hearts, that which isn't seen. Of course, you don't see my physical heart either, because if you did, that would be a problem. But the spiritual heart is that which isn't even possible to see. But it is that subtle substance that we each have within us this subtle reality about ourselves by which we know things and by which we navigate the path and by which we come closer to God. And we spoke about the different realms of the heart, the nafs and the qalb and the aql and the ruh, right? the soul and the spirit and the intellect and the heart itself. And we spoke about the armies of the heart, anger and, and passion or appetite or appetence. And how we refine those things, how we need to put all of those characteristics in the right places. And today we move on to something else. So we spoke about character, and we spoke about refining character, and how that all takes place at the heart. And now we're shifting gears a little bit because now we're going to explore how the heart is a vesicle, or sorry, is a vehicle for knowledge. A vessel for knowledge, that's what I'm trying to say. It's a vessel for knowledge, right? That the heart is not only capable of being beautiful and sound and healthy, or on the other hand, corrupt and sick and unwell. And that's something that we see in terms of, primarily in terms of character. But the heart, it's, it's food, it's nutrition, is knowledge. And the heart primarily is a means by which we come to know. And the greatest thing that we know, of course, is God Himself. 
And that's why we were created. But the question that we're going to explore, God willing, today is what stops the heart from gaining knowledge? And perhaps to go to address that question, we have to more appropriately consider what is the means by which the heart gains knowledge? That's what we're going to explore today. And what we said before is that it is the heart, the heart of hearts, right? The spiritual heart. That is what distinguishes us as human beings. We're not special or different or anything like that because of our bodies or our strength or uh, because we get angry or because we have appetites or any of those things, right? We're not unique because we procreate. We're not unique because we do this or that or the other thing. But what makes us unique is that we have this very special capacity for intellect, for understanding, that although other animals and and plants and other living beings have a sort of understanding and they have life and so forth, they do not have the sort of understanding that human beings have, right? We are a, a, a... a species of civilizations and of buildings and of religion and things like that, which other aspects of creation don't have the same thing. And so primarily what distinguishes us as human beings is the heart of hearts. And what distinguishes the heart of hearts, the spiritual heart, is knowledge is knowledge and understanding. That is the light of the heart. And as we said before, as we discussed before, the heart is like a mirror. The heart is like a mirror, and so it reflects whatever is before it. And it reflects whatever, you know, whatever you put before it. That it takes. It not only reflects that in the sense of providing knowledge about that, but it also becomes sort of. It reflects that in its form, and, and I'll speak a little bit more about that because that's probably a little bit unclear right now. But it is this aspect of knowing this this ability to know and to have knowledge. That really is not only. Um, it's not only you know, a, a very special gift, but it is a profound responsibility. As God says in the Qur'an, Indeed, we have presented the trust, right? We have presented the trust to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, but they refused to take it and they shied away from it. Whereas the human being took it on. Indeed, the human being is profoundly oppressive or profound wrong, a profound wrongdoer and profoundly ignorant. And so, of course, when we were created... And when all of creation was created, God presented the opportunity for what he calls the trust. And the meaning of that, the reality of that, we're not going to go into the full depth of that. 
But God presented this trust to creation. And He presented it to the heavens, and He presented it to the earth, and He presented it to the mountains. But all of them refused this trust. Because they realized they couldn't hold up that responsibility. But human beings, we accepted it. And we may not remember that. We probably don't remember that. But each of us accepted that. Right? Again, as God says, وَإِذْ أَخَذَ رَبُّكَ مِنْ ظُهُورِ بَنِي آدَمَ وَأَشْهَدَهُمْ عَلَىٰ What do you say? وَإِذْ أَخَذَ رَبُّكَ مِنْ بَنِي آدَمَ مِنْ ظُهُورِهِمْ ذُرِّيَتَهُمْ وَأَشْهَدَهُمْ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ أَلَسْتُ بِرَبِّكُمْ قَالُوا بَلَىٰ Right? When your Lord took from the children of Adam, from uh, their loins, from between their, from their loins, their own, uh, their own progeny, right? And he gathered them all together, and he called them to witness against themselves. Am I not your Lord? And they all said, yes. Yes, indeed, you are our Lord. And of course, that refers to one of the lives of human beings, because we don't just have one life. It's not just you're born here, and you grow up, and you go through toddlerhood, and you go through uh, adolescence, and you go through, uh, you become uh, elderly, and, uh, and then you, know, you pass away, and you, know, you have children somewhere along the way, and it continues the cycle. It's not just that, but rather, our scholars speak about us having five lives. And it is this first life that is addressed here, that God created us as tiny little souls, small lights. And for thousands and thousands of years, all of these lights were revolving around the throne of God, making tawaf, right? Out of worship for Him, and praising Him, and glorifying Him. And that's a reality, that's something that we might not have access to, that's something we might not see, that's something we can't objective or like scientifically prove or something like that, but it is a reality. And after all of these thousands of years, these souls know God as Al-Ilah, they know God as God. But they don't know God as Al-Rabb. Right? They know God as the one who created everything, they know God as the one who has power over all things. And so they praise Him as such. They know God as God, but they don't know God as Lord. And what does that mean? What's the difference? We'll get to that in a moment. But all of these souls, the souls of every human being who would ever be, revolve around the throne of God and then God gathers them all together. And He says, Alastu bi Rabbikum, am I not your Lord? He calls them to bear witness against their own selves. And it's like, we've been doing this for 10,000 years, or 20,000 years, or 50,000 years, however long. Like, we've been just praising God over and over and over again. Of course, bala. Like, indeed, yes, of course, you are our, you are our Lord. But in fact, God was going to manifest to these souls or show himself to these souls in a way that was in a way that they had not yet experienced. 
And that was as the Rabb, that was as the Lord. And as we said before, the Lord is the one who commands and forbids. Right? The Lord is the one who commands and forbids, right? And so these souls that are revolving around the throne of God, they, they're not capable of disobeying God. They're not capable of sinning or anything like that because they don't live in the world in which we live yet. But it is that point, at the point that they bear witness to God, that they become morally responsible. And then that starts the, the cosmic drama of this world that we see around us. That starts, you know, the cycle of Adam being sent to earth and Adam and Eve and them having children and then children and children and children all the way up until our generation, right? And that, that starts the cycle of us, you know, being born and growing up and coming to know, you know, this is good and this is bad and you should do this and you should not do that. And us doing good things and us making mistakes, and us responding to the call to God. But that is us, when God calls us to witness, that is us taking on the amana, taking on the trust. That the heavens and the earth and the mountains and all of creation, not, nobody else could take that on or would agree to take that on. And we are morally responsible because we have this capacity to know. We have this ability to distinguish between right and wrong and good and bad, and so forth. And so there is a sense in which that amana refers to knowledge and refers as well to our hearts. So that's very powerful because we have to take this responsibility very seriously. But now we begin to explore what does it mean to have knowledge? And what stops the heart from having knowledge? So as we said, the heart is like a mirror. So this is a mirror that I could find. Unfortunately, it's not the best mirror, right? But the mirror, it, it, this one is actually curved, so it doesn't really give uh, very clear images. But uh, like, I think you're supposed to use it when it's, it's close up so that you can, you know, tidy yourself up or whatever the case may be. I don't, <laughs> I don't use a mirror very often. But in any case... Right? The mirror reflects. And the heart is like a mirror. And so anything you put in front of the heart, it will reflect that. And so what does that mean? In one sense, that means if you put something in front of the heart, right? You can have knowledge about that. So it will reflect information about that, right? Like if I, if I take this mirror and I look at myself, then I can, I can get some information about my face, Right? Your heart, likewise, if you put something in front of that, some knowledge or information or something like that, the heart will take that in. Right? You'll see the image in the mirror. Just as that information will, will take place in the heart, or it will find its place in the heart. But also... One of the aspects of the heart reflecting knowledge or reflecting whatever is put between, uh, in front of it is that the heart takes the form of whatever is presented to it. So it's not only conveying information about something on the outside, but whatever you put in front of the heart, the heart becomes more like that.
the heart becomes more like whatever comes in front of that. And in that sense, it reflects whatever is in front of the heart, right? And it is with these images and these things that come to the heart, like these influences on the heart, right? That change it and influence it such that it becomes more able to reflect knowledge or it becomes more able to, to take in knowledge and it becomes more able to uh, be used for the purpose for which it was created. Or it becomes less so. Does that make sense? And so... This is very important because in our tradition, in, in, in the sacred law of our Prophet Muhammad and our Prophet Moses, right? Both of those legal traditions, you could say, or, yeah, let's say, well, both of those legal dispensations or both of those sacred law systems and many others are very careful about images, right? Very careful about images. And part of that, yes, has to do with um, idolatry and things like that, that we don't take up idols and worship them and so on and so forth. But again, some of the most dangerous idols are the idols of our hearts, the idols that reside within our hearts. And so when you take up an image, when you prop up an image... Or when you let an image into your heart, that can be an even more dangerous idol. And that's very important because we live in a time when you know, advertising manipulates images to manipulate our hearts. Like the sorts of things that are presented to our eyes, which are the windows to our hearts. Or even worse things like pornography and things like that. All of those images that come to us, they have profound influences on our hearts. And they shape our hearts. And they make them more or less able to take in knowledge and to reflect the world beautifully. But there's also very beautiful images. There's also very beautiful things you can present to your heart, like the beautiful smile that your mother shows you, like when your mother looks lovingly into your eyes. Right? There's, no, there's nothing to compare that to and the profound healing effect that has on your heart. Or, you know, gazing upon the word of God, the mushaf. You know, or smiling in the face of your brother or your sister, or whatever the case may be, right? They're also beautiful images. Or going to the mountains and looking out on, you know, the vast expanse, right? And we're very blessed in, in, in Alberta specifically. Well, in Canada generally, like we have... You know, so much beautiful, uh, so much beautiful scenery that goes well beyond whatever that screensaver can show you, right? Like looking upon the creation of God, right? Those are beautiful things for your heart. And you look out into the mountains and the valleys and you realize that your heart is even more expansive than all of that. Those are powerful images. And those are powerful influences upon the heart. But it is when we have that knowledge, when we gain that knowledge, and we increase in that knowledge, when we take on that responsibility, when we take on that trust, that then we begin to be able to answer the questions, the pressing questions we have around us in the world. People are hurt. 
people are down, right? The environment is angrily reacting against the way it's been wronged and oppressed. There's political instability. There's darkness in the world around us. There's corruption and greed and evil and all of these things. We can only begin to set those things right when we begin working on our hearts. Let alone our own wrongs and our own uh, evils even that we put out in the world. We can't even begin to address those until we take a deep look inside and think about what are we doing? Who are we? That begins with the heart. And so Imam al-Ghazali, we like to use props, right? I just found this lying around somewhere. But Imam al-Ghazali speaks about knowledge, not only, or the heart, sorry, knowledge of the heart, not only as a mirror, but also as a sword. And a swordsman. Which is a very interesting image. And perhaps it is the case that he's alluding to the fact that taking knowledge, gaining knowledge, increasing in knowledge, learning and seeking, there is in that an act of courage. Gaining knowledge is an act of courage because the things that you learn, if you act on them, if you're willing to accept the truth, if you're willing to live for the truth, you may have to change your whole life. You may have to change everything about yourself. You may have to take opinions that are unpopular. You may lose friends. But you're doing it for the sake of the truth. That is an act of courage. But he says that, you know, you have these three aspects. So you have... (laughs) It's just a little bit pretentious to be holding a sword. Anyways, it's actually not a sharp sword, though. (laughs) Anyways. But you have... The swordsman, I'm not a swordsman, but you have an individual, right, who's going to take the sword. That's like the heart that knows. Right? So I can can write that down, maybe that will be... So you have the knower, which is like the heart. And then you have the sword itself which is the knowledge. And then you have the act of knowing, right, which is taking the sword, which is grasping the sword. So you have the heart, right, the heart, which is the one who who takes the sword. And you have the sword itself, which is knowledge, and then you have grasping it and taking it out, which is the act of knowing. Right? But not everybody is able to take, a, uh, to take out that sword. Not everybody is able to wield a sword. Not everybody can be a swords person. That's not a capacity that everybody has. And as long as the sword remains in its sheath, it's not really of much benefit. And as long as knowledge remains untapped, as long as there's no heart to take it, then it's not really of much benefit. But that's one of the examples of the heart gaining knowledge. But when we return to the mirror, there are five ways that Imam al-Ghazali speaks about in terms of 
the heart as a mirror not being able to reflect knowledge perfectly. And so the first of those ways is if the mirror isn't fully formed or it's not properly formed. And so he gives an example of like some iron that hasn't been uh, fashioned properly or it's not been refined, it's not been polished or whatever the case may be. And so it can't really reflect. Or a mirror that's still in production or something like that. It's not yet ready to reflect the world around it. It's not yet properly formed. And so it's limited in that capacity. And that is like the heart that is not yet ready to take on knowledge. And what might that be? Well, that might be like the, the heart of a child. Right. I mean, of course, children are very beautiful and they have this capacity to take things in, but you know, they haven't gained certain knowledge yet and they haven't learned certain things about the world or a baby, or whatever the case may be. But also, you know, somebody who perhaps uh, is, ha, suffers some sort of mental illness or something like that, such that they're disconnected from reality. Things like psychosis and so forth. That limits their capacity to be able to understand, whatever the case may be. But that is a heart that's not yet ready to take in knowledge. The second type of heart, the second type of mirror that's limited in its capacity to take knowledge is the dirty mirror, right? Like this one. This one's not very clean, but there's a bunch of stains on it. And so the image that it shows you is going to be imperfect, right? Like you're looking for like 10 hours in this thing, and you're like, I just can't get that spot off my face. And then you realize there's actually a stain on the mirror. It wasn't actually on your face, right? That mirror that heart as a mirror is limited because it's burdened by these darknesses and by this dirt and all sorts of other things that obscure the view, which is like the sins of the heart, which is like the way that sins affect the heart. And worldly preoccupations generally, but particularly with sins, with particularly with wrongdoings, the way we hurt one another, you know, God forgive us, the way that we fail to, of course, you know, fulfill God's right upon us in terms of worship and loving devotion and things like that. But all of those things have darknesses. And, you know, you can, I don't know if, how well you can see this mirror, but you might be able to see that there's a few spots here and stuff like that. I can clean it, right? I can, like, rub it a little bit down. And, you know, if I had some, something to polish it or something like that, or I could spray it down or something like that, it might even be a little bit more clear. But nonetheless, however much I clean it, right, there's always going to be leftover spots. It's never going to be quite the same as it was when it was first made. And so it is with our sins, because when we do wrong, when we harm people, and when darkness comes to our hearts, we can polish our, those hearts. We can, we can clean them by doing good things and following up an evil action with a good action. And the good action will wipe out the evil action. But nonetheless, that evil that we did 
it brought some darkness to the heart or it took away from the light of the heart and, and that light may never come back. That light may never come back. We do also have this capacity as we spoke several times before to turn back to God, to make tawbah. And one of the beautiful things about tawbah is that when it is sincere, when we sincerely turn back to God, then He erases everything. And then He gives us a mirror. Then He gives us a mirror that's maybe even more beautiful than when it was first made. And that's even more able to reflect the world around it. But it's very rare for us to really sincerely turn everything over to Him. That's something we always have to aspire for. But that's the, second, that's the second means by which the heart's not able to, to reflect the world around it. And it's not able to gain knowledge just because of the darkness of sin and wrongdoing. Then the third way he speaks about is when the heart, when the mirror is not facing the right way. <laughs> It's facing the wrong direction, right? So for example, if, if uh, somebody were to say, show me Ibrahim in the mirror, he's just right in front of me, that's what he said, right? And let's say I didn't know who Ibrahim was. So I said, okay, who's Ibrahim? So I, I start uh, directing the mirror in every direction except in the direction of Ibrahim. Because I don't know who Ibrahim is, right? So I don't even know where to turn. And so Ibrahim's image never shows up in the mirror. And likewise, the heart, if the heart's not turned towards the right object, it doesn't even know what object to turn to, then it may never be able to reflect that pure knowledge. It may never be able to reflect the knowledge of God. What does that mean? Most of us probably live our lives and you know, we try our best to do good, to be good to other people around us, and you know, to worship God, and you know, to do nice things, and to be good people, and to raise our sons and daughters in the best ways, and to be good spouses, and to be good brothers and sisters, and to be good children, and everything, right? But oftentimes we don't really see much beyond that. And our lives might not look much different from anybody else's life. But when you look at the word, you know, we have this term, we talk about people as murids, or as talib. Right? And those have very specific terms, they refer to students, or whatever the case may be. But what do those words actually mean? The murid, really, is somebody who's seeking. The talib is likewise somebody who's seeking. Or the murid is somebody who desires something, linguistically. And the talib is somebody who's seeking a thing. And when you speak about the, the muridun of Allah, those who desire God, right? that's a very special thing. And that's a very special station, and that's a station that perhaps not everybody attains to, or even seeks, right? 
But what distinguishes the seeker of God from anybody else, the seeker of truth, the seeker of absolute truth, what distinguishes that person is this, what Imam Abdullah bin Alawi al-Haddad, this great scholar from the 18th century, he calls a law'a, right? Law'a. And in the Arabic language, you have lots of different words for, to refer to love. Law'a is one of those words. But law'a is a very specific type of love. Uh, in English or Arabic or what? Sorry, I don't have the best writing in English or Arabic. That's that's loa, right? And that's a disquieting. It's a lamb. Sorry, it's a l. Is that clear? <laughs> You're all welcome to critique my penmanship. It's not the best. Anyways. The lo'a is this disquieting passion, this love that's, that's all-consuming, right? And there's degrees of love, as we mentioned, but lo'a is where you have this profound desire that overcomes your heart, and like it overcomes your whole life, and that you become obsessed with the beloved. You become obsessed with the object of your love, and you seek out the object of your love in every way. And you spend days and nights just thinking about the one you love. And you can't sleep, and, and you know, you, you spend all of your energy in just seeking that, that one out. That's what it means to be a seeker of God, to be a seeker of truth, to be a seeker of the true beloved. It's to have this passion that will never be satisfied until you arrive safely in the presence of the one whom you love. Right? That's the reality of being a seeker. Most of our hearts, and certainly, you know, I'm very deficient in that, most of our hearts aren't directed towards that goal. Yes. Well, I mean, in terms of the middle path and moderation and things of that nature, God knows best, but moderation, as I understand it, is putting everything in its right place. I'tidal, uh, the word in Arabic, which you could say refers to balance, comes from the same root as adl, as justice. And justice, as we said before, is to put everything in its right place. Well, no, I...
But the demands of our faith include the dunya, right? The demands of our faith include this world. And so having this obsession with God or having this profound... You know, they say that the idea, that the true friend of God is the person whose insight is absolute love and devotion and being lost in the presence of God. But whose outside is absolutely the character or the behavior of somebody who lives in the world, right? And so it may be that in, inside I'm profoundly consumed by this unsatisfiable desire for God. But on the outside, people might not see that at all. And they might just see me as hopefully as a good man, as somebody who's nice and who's somebody who's, you know, does nice things and, and who goes... You know, or, or whoever, like, you know, somebody who goes out of their way to, to serve other people and to be there for other people and somebody who's a good uh, son or daughter, a good mother or father, a good husband or wife, a good brother or sister, they might just see that. Somebody who works hard and, and um, serves other people. But they don't see the inward reality of that individual. And the inner reality of that individual is absolute devotion. Like it's totally, always in the presence of the Creator. Whereas the outside is always in the presence of creation. Right? That's what I understand balance to be. Right. Right. Well, I think that's very valuable. I thank you for that. And, you know, the Prophet, he ascended to the past the seventh heaven. And he, he went two bow lengths or nearer, as the Qur'an says. He was two bow lengths or nearer. And the reality of that, because God is not in a place. God isn't a man that you can take a spaceship to just to reach or something like that. God is not above literally. God is above in the meaning that God is beyond anything that you could ever imagine. And God's rank is beyond anything you could ever imagine. So when the Qur'an says he was two bow lengths or nearer, what does that even mean? What does that mean when the, you're referring to the one who's without place? I mean, God alone knows what that means. But the Prophet ﷺ experienced the manifestation of God in a way that nobody else in creation would ever see or experience or feel. And he has this profound experience. And then he, you know, what's almost even, in some ways, even perhaps more amazing than that, is that he comes back down. And he continues to live amongst his people, and he continues to serve them, and he fixes his own, he mends his own shoe. And he's always in the service of his family. Like, what is that? Like, I, it's, it's, like impo it's like very difficult to even understand. Like, how can that be? Like, you can have this profound spiritual experience, the ultimate spiritual experience, and that yet you still continue to serve your family. And you still continue, continue to be a person of your people. And that's very powerful, right? But his heart never stopped being in the presence of Allah. And so that's the obsession we're speaking about. An obsession that's connected with knowledge and that's connected also with service. 
But most of us don't have that desire. And so most of us don't seek that out. But that's the third type. The fourth type is when the mirror is veiled. Like, I don't have a veil, but I'll use my book. Right? And so, like, I might be trying to reflect um, who wants to be used in this example. I don't want to use Ibrahim again. Okay. So I might be trying to reflect my brother, right? Luqman over there. And, you know, like, the mirror isn't able to do that because there's a veil in front of it. And so for that reason, right? right <laughs> and his mother is veiling him too. <laughs> right? And likewise, the heart can be veiled. And again, Imam al-Ghazali says that some of those things might be the preoccupations of, of this world and stuff like that. Or, or, and again, like, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be involved in, or engaged in the world or we shouldn't be... We, of course, have to fulfill our obligations and we have to be acting in the world and we have to be working to make things better for the people around us and for all of creation, Right? But when those anxieties and those desires become the very substance of our heart, and when our, world, when our heart fills with love of lowly things, that becomes a veil. But it even becomes more profound than that because sometimes there are things that are actually important. Right? Like, Things like, you know, how do you pray and, 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 and uh, details of, of, you know, fiqh and so forth, right? Those things are also important, but when they become obsessions of our hearts, when we obsess about details, when we obsess about things like, I don't know, like my madhab or my school of law or, or you know, my group or whatever the case may be, or my nation or my political party, or whatever the case may be. Those are all important things. But when they become obsessions that overcome our hearts, then they become veils. Because your heart, the love of your heart, is meant ultimately for love of God. Right? And it is through that love that you love everything else in creation. It is through that love that your heart is expanded and unlocked so that you can take in everything else in creation. But your first love is your love for God. And when we fill that heart with other things, then those things become veils from us accessing true knowledge. And then the fifth reason that we're not able, that the hearts aren't able to gain knowledge that Imam al-Ghazali speaks about is a little bit counterintuitive or it's a little bit difficult to understand. But that is when the heart, um, excuse me, that is when you're trying to gain certain information that perhaps you're not using your heart the right way. Or perhaps you're not getting adequate perspective or whatever the case may be. So for example, if I take this mirror and I want to see the back of my neck, 
I can put the mirror like this in front of my face, but all I can see is my face. And like I'm trying to, I'm trying to, like I'm trying to reach behind and stuff like that. I can never see the back of my neck. And if I put my, my mirror here, so that it's lined up with the back of my neck, right? If this were a better mirror, you could probably see the back of my neck. But, you know, I might turn left and right and so forth, but I can never see the back of my neck. And so try as I might, like wherever I put the mirror, I can never see it, right? And the way to solve that problem, of course, is to take this little mirror and to go up in front of a bigger mirror or whatever the case may be. In, other case, in any case, I need to have two mirrors, right? And so I put one mirror behind, I put one mirror in front, and then, you know, the mirror behind reflects my neck and then it reflects it onto the mirror in front of me so that I can see that, right? So basically, I need two mirrors. And this is the capacity, perhaps you could say, to put knowledge in its right place. To have adequate perspective. To think in the right paradigm. And that's a very big topic. I'm not sure how much we can really say about that. But oftentimes when we're presented with certain aspects of information, we're giving certain factoids or whatever the case may be, we don't know how to really interpret them properly because we're not thinking the right way. So, for example, right, you know, in East Africa, in Zanzibar, there was a great scholar and he was a very brilliant man. And he was somebody who really understood people. And this was in, you know, the 20th century. And this shaykh, his name was uh, uh, Habib Umar Abdullah. And Sayyid Umar Abdullah, he was like the qadi, he was like the, the chief judge, he was the most learned scholar in that area. But you know, the, 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 there was a bar right next to the mosque, right? And so he would regularly go to the mosque. But before he would go to the mosque, he'd always stop in by the bar, especially at nighttime. And he would see all the people who was there, and he would be smiling and stuff like that. And he would say, Salaam alaikum, how are you doing? And stuff, and he'd greet the people. And he would say, you know, and like they're drinking alcohol, they might be drunk out of their minds. He was like, how are you? I haven't seen you in a long time. And he would, he would greet the people. Every, he'd spend a few, some time there and he would, he would uh, touch base with people and see how they're doing, if they needed anything, if he could help them. And then he would leave and then he would go to the mosque. And so, you know, some of the scholars, they came to uh, Sayyid Omar and they're like, you know, Sayyid Omar, we have, we, have, we have a big problem. And he's like, what's wrong? And they said, People say you go to the bar every night. <laughs> no, he wasn't doing that, right? And, you know, Sayyidina Omar was somebody who was very, very approachable. And people felt very comfortable speaking with him, like about anything. So there are a bunch of young people and, you know, they wanted to go, they wanted to go for some, a particular party or something like that. And, you know, they were going to do whatever they were going to do there, right? Um, 
you know, there might have been alcohol there and there might have been, you know, whatever happened at, at that party, right? So they went to say to Omar, and they said, you know, uh, Habib, we, we really need to borrow your truck. And then uh, Habib asked, well, why do you need my truck? And Habib said, because we have to go to this party and we're going to dance and, you know, we're going to do all this stuff and stuff like that. And then uh, Habib said, I'm sorry, I can't let you use my truck. They said, why not? He said, you're not insured. <laughs> it was just a joke. <laughs> no, but, but he said, you know, like, you know, I just want to make sure that, you know, like, I can't, I can't let you use my truck. But he said, how about, how about this? He said, how about, you know, you want to go out, uh, let's meet up for the Isha prayer. Let's meet up for the night prayer, right? We'll meet at the mosque. And, um, you know, it's not very far away from, from where that, that party is. So we'll meet at the mosque. We'll pray the Isha prayer. And, you know, then I'll take you to the party. And then I'll go and I'll go up the mountain and I'll go do my thing. I'll make my dhikr or whatever the case may be. Whatever he had to do, he said, I'll just wait and I'll just be there. I'll be up on the mountain. And, you know, then when the morning comes around, then I'll come back and we'll meet at the mosque again for... Sorry, no, I'll come back and I'll, I'll pick you up and then I'll take you to the mosque for, for, for the prayer, for the fajr prayer or the subh prayer. And then he said, you know, then you're free to go, Right. And they said, okay, that sounds great, right? So they were all happy, so they all did this, they all did this little arrangement, so they meet at the mosque, and then Habib Omar tells, takes them to their little party, and then he goes up the mountain, and then he comes back, and he meets them at the party, and he takes them to the mosque again. And nobody thinks like Habib Omar, nobody thinks like Sayyidina Omar, right? Because the Prophet says, whoever prays the Isha prayer in congregation, it's as if they spent half the night in prayer. And whoever spends the Subh, whoever prays the Subh or the Fajr, prayer and congregation, it's as if they spent in one narration half the night in prayer and another narration the whole night in prayer. So like these people, they got up to whatever they got up to, but they had the reward of spending the whole night or one and a half nights in prayer. And that was the genius of Habib Umar, of Sayyid Umar. So much so that in, 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 in Swahili, he was called Winni Baraka. He was called the man of Baraka. Right? And whenever you mention the name Winyi Baraka, right? And you can see this, you mentioned the name Winyi Baraka in a gathering. And people like people who knew him, they just start crying and they make Tawbah right on the spot. They turn back to God right on the spot. Because they remember this beautiful man. And again, that's a good example of somebody who was totally, entirely like on his inside, God knows best, but it seems like he was totally with the, in the presence of God. And now on the outside, he's just this nice, funny man who has his own idiosyncrasies. And like people like him and they respect him. But because they have his trust, they love him. And because they have his trust, because they know they can trust him, then they can tell him anything in the world. Right? That's a profound paradigm shift. But the whole point of telling you that story was to say that, you know, you see like Winnie Baraka, who's this very special person, right? Who's a very good man. And you see him every night, he's going into the bar, right? Just given that piece of information, you might think, oh, astaghfirullah, like what a terrible person. Like every night he goes to the bar and stuff like that. And like, you know, he's, he's like a corrupt scholar and he's this or that or the other thing, right? That's when you get like one aspect of information, but you don't have the other mirror to show you the right perspective. Does that make sense? Because the other mirror that will show you the perspective is like, well, what do I know about this individual? 
I know that Muni Baraka, he's a scholar, he's a learned man, he's somebody that I've only ever seen goodness from. He's somebody who's very, uh, very uh, upright in his dealings with other people, and he's very uh, a good man, right? And so then I might say, well, you know, when I have these other mirrors that are giving me this other perspective, I can think maybe he has an excuse. Maybe he's going there for some other reason. Maybe he's going there for a very good reason, like he wants to see how the people are doing, and he wants to see if he can be of service to them, or whatever the case may be. But that's an example, right? Sometimes we don't have adequate knowledge, or we can't gain knowledge because we can't put things into perspective. Right? And of course, insofar as these hearts, insofar as the hearts are mirrors themselves, it is a great blessing to have the perspective of your brothers and sisters. Right? Sometimes, you know, this might be the, heart, the mirror of your heart. I, like, I'm, I'm trying to, to see... Or this might be the mirror of my heart. I'm trying to see the back of my neck, and I'm, I'm having a really bad time, right? I'm having a really hard time with that, right? So I look at the front, I can't see it. I look at the behind, I can't see it. And I need another mirror. That mirror might be the mirror of your heart. Right, and you come forward and, and then everything becomes clear. And then I have good perspective. And then I can see things as they truly are. And so that's the great benefit, not only of having knowledge and being able to put things in the right places, but also in being able to learn together. And to be together as a community. And to be able to speak You know, just as Sister Naz just now, like you raised a very good point, right? Giving us more perspective, right? So when we come together, we think about these things together, we discuss these things together, and we seek clarity from one another. Then we become mirrors that reflect one another. Then we become mirrors that reflect one another. As we related the hadith last week. Uh, that the believer is the mirror of the believer, right? And you really see that when we come together. Um, so again, closing out, we speak about what stops the heart, or what are the barriers of the heart from gaining knowledge. And again, we spoke about five of those barriers, that the heart's not ready to, to receive knowledge. Or it's not ready to receive certain knowledge or certain understanding or whatever the case may be. And again, we spoke about you know the example we gave of that. That was the first one. But the example we gave of that is children. And again, children are profoundly wise, right? Children are profoundly innocent. And we have a great deal to learn from children, right? Many of you have heard the hadith, the beautiful statement of our Prophet It's related by Abu Hurairah in the collections of, Abu, uh, of Bukhari and Muslim. Right? That every newborn is, or every child, every babe, is born upon the fitrah, this innate primordial disposition towards the truth. And then it is his parents or her parents who raise him or her as a Jew or as a Christian or as 
a Zoroastrian or as an idolater or whatever the case may be. Right. And in another hadith that's related in the collection of Imam Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ relates from God himself that he says, وَإِنِّي خَلَقْتُ عِبَادِي كُلَّهُمْ حُنَفَاءٌ وَإِنَّهُمْ أَتَتْهُمُ الشَّيَاطِينُ فَاجْتَالَتْهُمْ عَنْ دِينِهِمْ He said, and indeed I have created all of my creation as hunafa, right? As people who are upon the right way. And the word hanif is that thing which always remains upright. The fasiq, which is the opposite of hanif, it's like the transgressor or the wrongdoer or whatever the case may be, is the thing that tends to fall over. The hanif is the one that tends to remain upright. And so God says about all of His creation that He created all human beings as hunafa, as those who are upright. But then indeed, demons or satans or satanic inspirations come to them and they divert them from their original way, from their religion, from the truth. And so children are created in this profound, beautiful state where they have this natural disposition towards truth and the natural disposition towards knowledge. And as much as that is encouraged and nurtured in them, then they continue, then that mirror begins to... I mean, of course, it's a very beautiful mirror and it's a perfect mirror. But that mirror begins to take shape and form so that it can fulfill particular functions, so that it can gain particular knowledge. But if that mirror is corrupted, then it will be corrupted. So the first barrier to accessing knowledge is not having the right mirror, or the mirror not being malformed, or not, not fully formed, or whatever the case may be. The second one being uh, the mirror being dirty or rusted over. The third one being the mirror being not facing the right direction. The fourth one being the mirror being veiled. And the fifth one being the mirror not having adequate perspective. Yes. Or the third and the fourth? So the difference between uh, the heart being preoccupied with other things and the heart being veiled. Uh, God knows best. Actually, I had that. I was thinking about that myself. But my understanding of that is that the veil is perhaps much more... Um, is perhaps when those things or those other preoccupations and sometimes dangerous preoccupations, right, become much more rooted or firmly implanted in the heart. And so I think it's a... Uh, a question of degree. Either they're much more firmly planted in the heart or perhaps they're much more dangerous preoccupations, right? If, like, I'm looking for Ibrahim as the example showed, or the, the example I gave, right? Like, I'm looking for Ibrahim with this mirror. I don't know who Ibrahim is. So it's not very hard for me just to turn from here just to, to face him, right? But if there's like a veil over that, that mirror, it's all the more difficult because whatever direction that I turn the mirror it's never going to actually show Ibrahim. Right? The veil actually needs to be removed. 
And so my understanding about, about that particular, Allahu A'lam, God knows best, my understanding of that was that the veiled heart is one either in whom these preoccupations have taken very firm root or else these preoccupations are of such a nature that they're much more serious than you know, just being preoccupied with uh, the things of this world. Right? Which again, like outwardly we all do the things of this world and we have to plan uh, appropriately for them and we, have to, you know, we do have to be concerned for them. But they're not the ultimate preoccupation of our hearts. I'm not sure if that is helps. Right, and then the fifth, uh, the fifth thing is the mirror not having adequate perspective. Um, so I'd encourage everybody, inshallah, in the coming week and in the week, uh, sorry, and in the next session as well, to begin to think about how our hearts mirror the worlds around us. And also in our next session when um, we have the opportunity to be together and to discuss together that we bring a self-consciousness to that and bring a sort of introspection so that we reflect on the fact that you know, how is your heart mirroring the heart of your brother? How is the heart mirroring the heart of your sister? And so on and so forth. And inshallah with that we can gain not only in that insight, but really in an experiential reality, to really experience our hearts as mirrors, to really experience our hearts as vessels by which we come to know not only the world around us, and not only creation, but God, the absolute truth himself. And one of the greatest ways that we can begin to unlock that knowledge and experience it is by being together, by being in good company, and by taking on that path and progressing on that path and traveling on that path as a caravan where we help one another and we assist one another. And then nothing is difficult by the grace of God. Inshallah. Is there anybody who has questions or comments or concerns or refutations or uh, criticisms or anything like that? I'd be happy to, to, to hear. We'd all be happy to hear from you. What is Quiet crowd. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, please. Oh, inshallah. Inshallah, we'll do that. Does anyone have any reflections or anything like that? Oh, yes. So that's a very beautiful question. <clears throat> if there are hearts that... I don't want to use language that's perhaps... Uh, I think I have to be careful about my language. But um, hearts that are perhaps not fully formed, I, I don't know if that... I, don't, I hope that's not derogatory or anything like that. But hearts that are not fully formed, 
Um, what is their role or what is their place in terms of coming to know God and coming to take the path and so forth? Is that fair? My understanding about that, and even if you look in fiqh, um, if you look in, in uh, text of the sacred law, uh, typically people of that category are, are lumped together. So whether they be very young children or they be uh, people who have some sort of psychosis or disconnect with reality or whatever the case may be, they're taken in the same category. In the sense that they're not morally responsible. right? Which means that, of course, if, if they hurt one another or whatever the case may be, like children, if they get into a fight or something, like you teach them, of course, right, that you know that's not appropriate and stuff like that. But in a certain sense, they're not really responsible because they don't, they don't know yet. And likewise, you know, um, when you deal with people who perhaps uh, suffer from a very severe mental illness or whatever the case may be, such that they don't have a moral compass in the same way that other people do anymore. Right? They might hurt one another or they might uh, or, or hurt other people or whatever the case may be, but they're not responsible in the same way. That's from a legal perspective. But one of the interesting things about putting them in the same category is that just as the child has this beautiful innate disposition and a beautiful innocence and profound knowledge in a certain sense, but it's not the sort of knowledge that you can speak about. Uh, it's not the sort of knowledge that they can articulate. But they have like a profound knowledge here. right? Likewise, many people who aren't connected with the world around them because of things like psychosis or mental illness or whatever the case may be, they often might still have that very beautiful innocence and purity and even profound insight. Right? And oftentimes the psychic projections that they have, like the things that they see, right, which we call hallucinations. Right? I mean, God knows best where those hallucinations come from or what's the process or what does that reflect. But sometimes they reflect realities. And sometimes they reflect aspects of the unseen, right? Just like dreams, like sometimes you see images and you see these powerful images that don't seem to make much sense. But oftentimes those images, even if they're just psychic projections, like projections of your nafs, like oftentimes they reveal a lot about who you are or they reveal a lot about, you know, your preoccupations or your anxieties or whatever the case may be. And oftentimes they reveal a lot about the world. So, and likewise, the visions of children, Right? Um, you know, what does the smile of a child mean? Right? Like, what a smile of a baby, right? Like, what is that baby smiling at, right? And God knows best, right? But there's profound experience and knowledge that happens there. And inshallah, all of these, you know, anybody who, who struggles with those things, if, if God takes them in that state, inshallah, they're all people of the garden. And they're all people who will have access to unlimited knowledge in the afterlife. But they're not accountable and they're not responsible in the same way that the rest of us may be. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Or it's not really? Yeah. Right. Like the purpose of schizophrenia? Yeah. Like, how does that, like, I have a responsibility to 
What do you mean by the purpose of it? Like, from what perspective? That's fine. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, as I understand, like, you know, we're all created, we, we are all created to know Allah, to know God, and we all have challenges in our path. Would schizophrenia be one of those challenges? Is that kind of the question? The thing about schizophrenia is that it's really hard to say because, I mean, obviously from a medical perspective, it's not very well understood, and, and, and you know that. Um, but there's also degrees of severity too, right? I mean, sometimes people with schizophrenia, like sometimes um, they're totally disconnected, right? Uh, and sometimes they might have moments where they're more lucid and moments where they're not. Or, or, or you can even think about things like dementia as well. And sometimes, you know, they might be um, very disconnected at one point and then they might take medications or they might get therapy and somehow they get a little bit better and they're able to function. So there's a large uh, variation or there's a large spectrum in that, in that sense. Allah, uh, you know, God knows best. Um, and certainly all of those, any sort of illness that we face, whether it be physical or mental, is a challenge from that perspective. But, you know, I think that from the perspective of somebody being deprived of having access to the intellect, right? Whether entirely or partially. Like, God does not take away from a person anything except that he replaces it with something much better. And it may very well be that we don't see that replacement or that uh, exchange in this world. But it may be that God created them in a very special way. He created them in a very special form. He created them with an innocence that would never be taken away from them. And they might be hurt and they might be abused and, and so on, but there's something about them that never changes. And perhaps ultimately he created them just for the garden itself. Perhaps he created them just for just to have a very special knowledge of himself. A very special knowledge that the rest of us, even though we work in the world and we live in the world and we do high-functioning jobs or whatever the case may be, we will never have access to that knowledge until we meet God Himself, perhaps. Allahu A'lam. Like He's put them in a very, He's put people with those sorts of challenges in a very, very special, special station or relationship. And ultimately, God knows best the wisdom of that or the reality of that. But He doesn't take something from a person except that He gives them something much better. Allahu A'lam. That's my belief or my understanding. I don't know if that's at all helpful or. Inshallah. I, I don't know that I have a good answer, but perhaps, you know, do you have thoughts on that?
Right. Like, I mean, a person's inability to connect with the world around them, how does that challenge their ability to connect to God? Um, you know, I, 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 I certainly can't answer that because I've never experienced that. But I do believe that, and again, I, I'm, I'm, I might not have a good answer for you, and perhaps you will have a good answer for me. Maybe not today, maybe another time. And, and, and a good answer for everybody else. Or maybe somebody else will have an answer. But I believe that everybody, what I understand is that everybody, like, you know, there's an old saying that the paths to God are as numerous as the breaths of creation. And that's not to say that, you know, like, um, you know, you can do whatever you want or be however you want and it's all the same. But what that means is that like everybody, God created everybody in absolute perfection and God relates to everybody in absolute perfection. And so, you know, we all go on this broad path towards Him, but like the way we go and, 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 and how we navigate that and stuff is very different for everybody. But it's perfectly made for every individual. It's perfectly fashioned for every individual. And whatever challenges that I may have or my brother or my sister may have along that path, everything is perfectly fashioned so that I will have the knowledge that was intended in ultimate divine wisdom to be perfectly catered just for me, right? To have the knowledge and the experience that only I can have. And like my experience of the path is not going to be like your experience of the path nor is it going to be like anybody else's experience in the path, right? Nor are your experiences going to be the same. Everybody has a very, very individual relationship with Allah, right? Everybody has a very, very individual and specific and unique relationship with God, which is a miracle because of all the billions and trillions of people who will ever live. Everybody relates to God uniquely and God relates to everybody perfectly, right? And... I mean, I can't even comment on your experience of the path, let alone somebody who's, uh, you know, struggles with things like psychosis or schizophrenia or something like that, uh, who's perhaps more different than, than from myself than you. And God knows best what is the wisdom behind that. Uh, God knows best what is the purpose behind that. But I think that one of the ways we benefit from one another is by recognizing the beauty in which God created all of His creation and recognizing the goodness and celebrating that and bringing that out and you know by being of service to one another whatever challenges we might have whatever handicaps we might have whatever anything but just trying to be of service to one another right service is the natural extension of love right and when your heart is consumed or obsessed or has this like this powerful love for god the natural extension of that is that you be servants of creation Right, whatever, wherever they're at, or wherever they be, and inshallah, Allah bless us to be there and, and to 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 have that success. Um, I, I I'm sorry that I can't really give you anything adequate, but you know, I, Allahu A'lam, God knows best, and uh, uh, I think we're also out of time. Well, she's getting very angry. <laughs> الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه أجمعين. Our sister Ihsan shared a message that our brother Usama Kanin 
his family has written that he's quite unwell. And um, of course, many or all of you know that uh, our brother Usama, he uh, seems to have gotten ALS a few years ago. And unfortunately, things have taken a turn for the worse with regards to his health. And it sounds like things are deteriorating quite a bit. Uh, so we want to make a special prayer for him, inshallah. Uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, O oh Allah, please heal our brother Usama inwardly and outwardly. O oh Allah, please heal our brother Usama inwardly and outwardly. O oh Allah, please bless our brother Usama. Bless our brother Usama. Bless his family. Bless his wonderful wife. Bless his wonderful children. O oh Allah, bless them all with ease and facilitation. O oh Allah, facilitate for them this transition. Facilitate for them all of their hardships and all of their difficulties. Make all things easy for them. Bless them with strength. Bless them with patience. Bless them with beautiful patience. Bless them to recognize the uh, to to gain insight and to recognize your wisdom in their afflictions. O oh Allah, bless them and make easy for them and alleviate any difficulty that they are facing. O oh Allah, facilitate for them all and bless them and bless the community that is mourning his. Um, his condition. O Allah, bless the community and bless everybody, bless all of the brothers and sisters with ease and facilitation, with insight and with recognition and understanding and appreciation and gratitude. Bless all of us to be people of patience and gratitude. Allahumma wafiqna lima tuhibbuhu wa tarda wa ja'alna min abidika su'ada wa amitna ala kalimatil huda alimna ma yanfa'una wa wafiqna lil'amali bima alamtana bih wa ja'alma nahnu fihi khalisan mukhlisan liwachika al-kareem ya rabbal alameen Allahumma ja'alta jamu'ana hadha tajamu'an marhuma wa tafarruqana ba'dahu tafarruqan ma'asuma la shaqiyan minna wa la mahruma wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala sayyidina muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen Oh Allah, we ask you to heal all of our sick and anybody who's sick or ailing, Oh Allah, please bring us to them with healing and well-being. All of the people who are in any struggle or any challenge, Oh Allah, facilitate for them their challenges and facilitate for them their difficulties. Oh Allah, bless everybody with patience with beautiful patience and insight and understanding and bless us with gratitude bless us to recognize your blessings upon us and bless us in that gratitude and in that patience for us to weather the storms that may be coming our way bless us with your lutf and your love your gentleness and your mercy and envelop us all in your love mercy and providential care and fulfill all of our needs and goals and aspirations inward and outward with excellence and beauty in ways more beautiful and wondrous than we could ever imagine. And do likewise with our families and our teachers and our students and our loved ones and anyone associated with us. And do likewise with all the believing men, women and children, past, present and future. And do likewise with all of the people of La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And make it a word of truth upon which we live and upon which we die and upon which we are raised in safety. Ameenina ya rabbal alameen. Rabbana taqabbal minna innaka anta sami'un alim. Wa tab'alayna ya mawlana innaka anta tawabun rahim. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala sayyidina muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen al-fatiha. Assalamu alaikum.